0: Welcome to the Chiropractors Association of Australia podcast. The CAA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as the latest research and how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Today, we're talking about something a little bit different. Uh, A few weeks ago, a colleague of mine, Michael Edgley, put something across my desk and said, you should read this research and speak to this girl. And I had a look at it, and it was called Trial of Pregabalin for Acute and Chronic Sciatica. Now, if you're like me and maybe a little bit rusty on your pharmacology, the first question was, well, what on earth is Pregabalin? You probably know it more by its generic, uh, or rather its brand name, which is Lyrica. Uh, and I'm sure virtually all patients, uh, all chiropractors, rather, would have patients who have been or are on Lyrica for some sort of neuropathic pain. So, certainly a drug that uh, we would be familiar with. Um, but fascinating that uh, a chiropractor was involved in research about this. And in a few moments, I'm going to introduce uh, you to. Um, to Stephanie Matheson. Now just to give you a bit of a, a bio and background of Stephanie, Stephanie is a Macquarie University graduate from 2006 she uh, didn't go very far because the very next year she was in teaching uh, first years in that course at Macquarie Uni and in 2013 began her PhD at the George Institute of Global Health and hence here uh, we, we have one of the outcomes of uh, her PhD being this pre trial. Stephanie, uh, hello and welcome to the CAA podcast.
1: Thanks, Anthony, and the warm welcome too.
0: You definitely have a, an interesting story that I'm really excited about delving into. Perhaps you can yes. start by uh, giving us a little bit of picture about your chiropractic story and uh, your transition into research.
1: Uh, So yeah, for me, um, I had chiropractic care when I was a teenager and for me, it worked wonders. I had some back pain that really came about from having a a heavy backpack um, and it was great benefit. And so for me, it's always been, well, it's been part of my life for a a number of years now. Um, And what I like about chiropractic is that you can help people and make a change to their lives. So for me, I actually started in a a different field doing biotechnology and and done honours there, which was really my introduction to research. But one of the things that I I found difficult or found as a barrier is that if anything that you find, it does take a long time for it to be put into place. And for chiropractic, you can change uh, people's lives and, and how they're feeling in short term. So uh, in some ways, it's it's much better to be a, a clinician and being in healthcare. And so my journey has gone from being a clinician now for, for 10 years and getting back to where I started was in uh, in the research field. But now my research is, is purely clinical based and still helping people and trying to improve people's health and care um, in that way. So at the moment, I'm still doing both, uh, being a little bit of time in clinic and spending my week doing research
0: so just the, the uh, you've gone through uh, your your chiropractic undergraduate studies did you have someone tap you on the shoulder while you're going through saying look Stephanie we really need you in research you're a, you're a bright spark we could uh, we could do with someone like you investigating how chiropractic can, uh, can help the world is that how it happened or is it something you're always going in that direction anyway
1: Well, funny the question, it's actually a bit of both. So I'd done an honours year in my biotechnology um, and then ended up going into doing a master's of chiropractic. So I I had some uh, research skills developed then, um, but thought I would spend most of my time as a clinician. um, But had always in the back of my mind, if a PhD crossed my path, that that I would pursue it. And it certainly did come before the position that I took, it did cross my path, but none of the projects were really quite right. Um, and I had ended up actually going for a, a position at University of New South Wales that I was down to one of two people and, and wasn't successful. But it worked out better in the end because I was referred to the George Institute in which uh, I was successful in getting um, the position there and the scholarship there. So um, it was it was interesting at the time. you you sort of a little bit disappointed and you question if you were doing the right thing, but it certainly worked out to be a, a great thing and the best thing. Yeah. One of the things that I oh, – sorry to interrupt, but one of the other things that I, was really important for me is when I was there, I understood and could ask lots of questions about the study because I know in, in previous conversations that we've had, it was it's certainly interested how I ended up doing a study that was more pharma, uh, pharmaceutical based than maybe what some other people had thought.
0: Well, that, this leads me to my next question because the, the, the second question I asked of Michael when what is pre-gabalin was why is a chiropractor doing research on pharmacology? Obviously, you would expect uh, most chiropractic researchers to be performing trials on manual therapy or exercise interventions. How did you end up going down this path?
1: Yes. So look, I certainly didn't uh, pursue trying to do a a medicine-based study at all. It was just when I uh, was referred to the Institute for the PhD position that it was a musculoskeletal group of researchers and they had identified a a gap in the literature of, of this one particular medicine, progabalin, and it was certainly being used uh, quite extensively. um, And there was actually no evidence for its use. And part of the conversations that I had at the Institute before starting and understanding about the study was that it was not a a pharmaceutical or a pharma study in the sense that it was an investigator-initiated study. And really what that means is that a group of researchers have identified a research question and a gap in the literature and them solely themselves are trying to find an answer which means that they seek their own funding, they do their own design, they do their own conduct of the study, their own analysis. And the big pharma companies are, are not part of the study them, themselves. And for me that was really important because I, I didn't want to do a pharma study as, as yeah. per se because uh, we're looking at trying to help people not uh, create more money for, for some big companies
0: so Pfizer are the makers of Lyrica, and as I understand, yes. they were obviously on board in terms of supplying the pregabalin, and, and their yeah. involvement pretty much ended there then, I guess, did it?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So uh, they provided the study medicine, uh, and the study medicine was the active pregabalin capsules and a matching placebo. So they provided that to us in bulk as no charge, and Part of our contract uh, agreement was that they uh, we followed their safety reporting, which is a pretty much standard procedure. So um, our serious adverse events, we had to report within 48 hours to Pfizer, and that's very similar to other um, pharmaceutical companies. And the only other request was that they review the manuscript 45 days before publication, but we didn't have to uh, incorporate any of their comments if we didn't wish. So we have done this study uh, solely by ourselves and they had no design in getting uh, ethics approval or getting the study up and running, recruitment, data collection, Uh, it's totally independent.
0: Very good. So we mentioned before, pregabalin is known as a drug for neuropathic pain. How often is this used in uh, conditions like sciatica?
1: Uh, For us here in Australia, there's certainly an increasing use uh, for pregabalin for sciatica and it's actually another part of my PhD was looking at how frequently uh, the group of medicines that pregabalin falls under, which is anticonvulsants, were prescribed for spinal pain and what I found was, was a little bit concerning. I mean, we know that pregabalin is Pfizer's number one selling product globally their financial reports are available publicly online and through the PBS looking at PBS data it's uh, number of prescriptions have been supplied um, in the first year that it came on the PBS which was 2013 over something like you know two million prescriptions so it's certainly being used a lot it's it's very effective what it's indicated for, which is post-herbetic uh, neuralgia and, and diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And we actually know that through a Cochrane review. Yep. But in terms of sciatica, um, looking at the study that I was doing, which was data from GPs um, over a 10-year period, there was... Uh, this anti-convulsant group of medicines rose over this 10-year period from 2003 to 13, uh, 535%. And when I looked, yeah, it was very scary. And when I looked at the numbers uh, more closely, there was a really sharp increase uh, by uh, 2013, which is when gablin came onto the pbs so it's certainly extensively used for sciatica and back pain and other spinal pain conditions and so for the for us for our trial results we really would like gps to be aware of the study and and uh, make acknowledgement that it really isn't the best medicine um, for patients with sciatica
0: so let's talk a bit about the, how you've defined Satika for the purpose of your uh, uh, research. Um, it's not just uh, back-related leg pain. You've really uh, defined it specifically uh, and had specific inclusion criteria. Can you just explain that just a little
1: yeah, uh, of course. Now, we we really wanted to capture people that were presenting to primary care, so we tried to keep a, a broad definition of sciatica because, really, at the end of the day, that's what's going to happen in clinical practice. Um, you know, other people, other investigators in, in our team had looked at actually how sciatica is defined in clinical trials and it was quite obvious that there isn't a clear and consistent Definition. So for us, we really uh, allowed uh, radicular pain or radiculopathy to be part of our definition. Um, and considering that most of the time, it's about 90% of the time sciatica is coming from the lumbar spine, we really tried to capture everyone that had leg pain. Uh, specifically as an inclusion criteria, they had to have leg pain below the knee for at least one week, but no longer than one year in duration. And really by that one week uh, minimum uh, leg pain duration, we were trying to exclude anyone that may have had some, a, a trigger point referral or something quite transient. And we really wanted to have people with proper leg pain that was coming from a neurological basis. Um, so that was the main criteria um, in terms of the definition. They could have, with their leg pain, uh, dermatomal pain, and/or mo- uh, sensory deficit or motor deficit or diminished reflex. And it didn't matter whether it was one or two or three of the above. The primary that there was leg pain below the knee.
0: So talk to us about the, the study itself. It was obviously a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study. Well, how mm. did you go about putting the people together and, and what were the results?
1: Yeah, recruitment's always a tricky thing in in studies, whether they're uh, uh, medicine-based or whether they're manual therapy because uh, people have to commit their time uh, to be part of the study. Um, And so for us, we were trying to capture a really broad range of people with leg pain in the community. And we had a number of chiropractors on board screening patients with sciatica. Uh, We had physios also screening. Um, And obviously, uh, as a chiropractor, we can't provide any of the study medicine. So a uh, majority of our patients came from GPs. Um, we probably had about uh, 60 GPs on board, uh, about 60 physios, 20 chiros and, and a couple of specialists as well. And everyone screened for sciatica and then were provided the study medication by the, the doctor or the study doctor. And we had all of the boxes pre-prepared, a GP would have uh, the study medication ready to go and we were all blinded. So uh, that meant that the GP, the patient, uh, us as research staff, the statistician, everyone didn't know what study medicine was in the box. So we had no idea whether it was the active or, or the placebo capsules. So the GP uh, administered the box, let us know that they were coming on board, uh, got the informed consent, and we obviously then randomised them into the study. Um, And the GPs followed the patients while they took the study medicine. And so this was up to eight weeks. And this was important because sometimes patients can't tolerate the medicine, whether it was our study medicine or, or another one. Yeah. So we had a suggestion of what study medicine should be uh, prescribed at each week. So it started at uh, 150 milligrams per day, up to a maximum of 600 milligrams per day. Um, and that was titrated up. And so if a participant felt that they had adequate pain relief, they could stay on the dose that was suitable for them. And conversely, if they were having some side effects, and um, most commonly is, is dizziness, and if they weren't feeling well and it wasn't right for them, they could stop taking the study medicine. So at no point in time did we force uh, anyone to take the whole eight weeks of study medicine. We we this the GP to make the best decision um, alongside the participant, what was best for
0: them. So uh, one thing that I found interesting were that, uh, and obviously a lot of these patients uh, are coming from, are referred from chiropractors to, to be in the study, mm-hmm. but these people could still receive additional medical care during the study and also that would include manual therapy or additional analgesics.
1: Yes. And so that's another, I guess, a unique feature and a great feature of the study is it took a really pragmatic approach because Really, uh, sometimes the medicine, no matter what it is, might not be beneficial or working for everyone. So if uh, there was other therapies that was suitable for the participant, that could be chiropractic care, that could be exercise, that could be massage. Um, it, it didn't matter. It was whatever helped them. And I guess in terms of recruitment, it also uh, made a, a different point in that anyone who was, worried about getting the placebo tablet or worried about not having an effect from the medicine, they never had to worry that they had to be in pain because Mm. they could take some other simple analgesics. They obviously couldn't take um, real pregabalin or gabapentin, which is in the same medicine class, but it just meant that they could take some other medicine and they didn't have to be in pain in order to be part of the study and help us.
0: So I guess what you've done here is really set up a study where you can get some useful information, but you are trying to mimic a, a real clinical experience by making it a, a pragmatic trial like this.
1: Yeah, totally, because it's exactly what happens in clinic. Uh, uh, a GP will prescribe a medicine, uh, uh, re-evaluate, and and maybe uh, participants need to take some other therapy, whether that's uh, manual therapy, whether that's uh, medicine, or or really nothing. They could do nothing at all. So yeah, this is what happens in real life.
0: So what were the outcomes that you were measuring and, and when did these measurements take place?
1: Yeah, so we had several, obviously several time points that we collected data um, and they were at week two or after randomisation, so after two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, and then at three, six and 12 months. And so over the year we collected information about how their leg pain was going, uh, their back pain, uh, disability, which was the Roland Morris questionnaire, um, quality of life, their global perceived effect and how they're going, uh, what medication, uh, study medication they were taking, their dose, any other additional medicines or additional therapy. Um, so lots of information was, was collected. And for us, our primary outcome was to look at leg pain intensity and to understand if while taking the medicine up to eight weeks the uh, gabapentin bucab- had a, a more improvement than placebo and then to evaluate that after one year. So for us, it was leg pain intensity was the primary uh, and we were powered statistically to evaluate that. But we were also powered to evaluate and understand uh, the results from the Roland Morris sciatica questionnaire, which was for disability and to look at those changes over time.
0: Okay, so I'm preparing my drumsticks here to give you the drum roll in, and the results were?
1: Well, we had for all outcomes, uh, which was obviously leg pain, back pain, global perceived effect, quality of life, there was no difference between groups, which basically means that progabalin was no more effective than placebo Mm. over the one year in uh, any outcome, except the only statistically significant outcome that we had was the increased risk of adverse events. So we did find something that was statistically significant, but no, it's nothing about in leg pain or back pain.
0: Well, isn't that fascinating? Now, on the adverse events thing, I I was very interested and surprised to realise that there were a high number of uh, adverse events, but not just in the uh, pre-gablin group, in the placebo group as well. I mean, I guess we're dealing with patients who have serious Health issues. Tell us about what these sort of serious adverse events and the other uh, adverse events were.
1: Yeah, so the part of our obviously reporting is our our safety uh, reporting, and it was um, interesting at the time because we're all blinded at the time. And so if anyone reported a particular uh, adverse event that they had headache or they were feeling dizzy at the time when taking the information from the participant you are very neutral because you can't obviously create any bias in, in data collection but sometimes you would think in the back of your mind I wonder which medicine, study medicine they got, whether it was actually the, the real stuff per se or whether yes. it was placebo. So it's, it's certainly after data collection. It's much longer um, in time before you actually get to, to look at the results. Um, if thinking about for serious adverse, adverse events, um, you know, that happens in, in really any study. Um, and what's important is that we only had two in the progabalin and six in the placebo. Um, events and, and obviously a serious adverse event is defined as someone needing to go to hospital or is, is really the basic criteria or becoming incapacitated in, in some sense but when we actually look at uh, the data for those who in the placebo group that went to hospital half of them were because they had increased back or leg pain so yeah. you can understand that that is a, a reasonable reason to go um, into hospital so the serious adverse events when you look at them um, are not too bad in, in that sense yes um, obviously we, we don't ever want anyone to to have a go to hospital at, at any stage in terms of the adverse events well there was was pretty much double so um, in the pregabalin group there was 220. Uh, seven events from 68 people and 124 events in 43 people in the placebo, placebo group and we need to remember that this was collected over the entire um uh, over the the year oh, bigger pun up to week 12 because there there was a three-month uh, period where we collected that information after taking the study medicine so um, that was not necessarily, Uh, everything that was reported uh, in the time that people were taking the medicine. This could be anything that they reported. So a lot of the time, it's not necessarily indicated to the study medicine. So if they wrote down that they had knee pain um, or they had a headache, sometimes we can't contribute that to the study itself. But because it's reported, we collect that information and we're quite transparent in in what we find. Yes, So the the important thing is that uh, the take-home message that we want to tell people is that it's uh, Pregabalin is not more effective than placebo. And if anything, there is increased risk. It's nearly uh, double the advance of, of people having some sort of adverse event in the Pregabalin group compared to the placebo. And most of the time, it's a dizziness. So um, in, in one way, it's uh, lucky that it's dose dependent most of the time. So if, once, if you had a patient that came in that was taking the medicine and you advise them that it may not be the best thing for them, and particularly, if they're they're feeling unwell from it once they titrate down and stop taking the medicine that that sign or symptom is likely to to go away
0: so i think you've probably answered this question already stephanie but where does this leave us as chiropractors you know we're we're uh, not in a position where we should be telling patients to go on this drug or go off that drug but how do we have the conversation with them uh, about lyrica for sciatica or, or indeed with gps
1: yeah, so this is an interesting one, and it's certainly um, a question that we've had. Like we've had very positive media response from the from the study, um, and and for us now, we really want to get the study out there to GPs to help. Uh, really stop, and at uh, will advise them about the study findings, but to provide some education so they may consider not prescribing it for sciatica. Yeah. Um, you know, it's indi- what it's indicated for; it works very well. But in terms of sciatica and low back pain, um, I really don't think it should be uh, a first point of call, and, and considering that it's not within the guidelines anyway. Um, you know, if we think about low back pain or non-specific low back pain that has really a nociceptive basis, and pregabalin is really for neuropathic pain. Um, I, I have heard cases where GPs have prescribed it for non-specific back pain, and, and I find that a little bit frustrating because a part part of it is that it is something close to my heart, but I feel that there's a little bit of injustice there that, that really shouldn't be prescribed. So for for chiropractors who are taking a history and conversing with their patients and find out that they are taking this medicine I guess they can provide the study results to them and and that patient can go back to the GP and have a discussion about what is best for them and and show them that it's really probably not the best medicine and uh, maybe look at uh, some of the guidelines that the, have come out recently. So the uh, low back pain guidelines from the UK have come out last year and, and this year the American guidelines. And there really is an emphasis for non-pharmacological therapies mm. and, and, and including manual therapies as well. So For where we stand as physical therapists, we've got the guidelines on our side and and we certainly should be providing um, some uh, tissue therapy, some manipulative therapy combined with some exercise, which is what's recommended in the UK guidelines.
0: Now, following on from what you've just said there... uh And if we talk more broadly now about chronic low back pain, um, and of course, sciatica would be included in a lot of those chronic low back pain patients. Mm.
1: Um,
0: Last year, we had research questioning the efficacy of uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories for chronic low back pain. Um, Some of the research for manual therapies is positive, some less so. Is there a a problem, I guess, with single intervention studies for these complex conditions when a multimodal approach is usually a better way to go?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting topic. It's it's certainly something that as uh, within my research world, it, it has come up as a question because it does feel like most interventions come up now as having no difference between groups mm. um, whether it's it's uh, medicine based or manual therapy that there always seems to be this sort of um, no difference between groups it's not actually a negative finding because that would suggest uh, something like otherwise um, if you find that one therapy is no better than something else that is actually important to inform for clinical care um, in regarding the the article with um, NSAIDs. Um, there certainly was a, a review done by someone in our in our group uh, that did look at NSAIDs for acute, chronic low back pain, sciatica, and and neck pain. And uh, overall, there there is some benefit. But when I look at the forest plots um, and looking at the pool data from all the studies. For chronic low back pain, there is a clinically important difference, or a, or a useful difference, um, for its use in chronic low back pain. So it, it may actually have a role there in, in providing some relief. Where and and this was at pain at uh, in an intermediate term. And when I look at the the forest plots for sciatica, that it just wasn't effective. So. Mm. Um, The difference in the conditions um, as a a mechanistic point of view, we've got sciatica that is considered a mixed pain condition in that there is neuropathic pain component alongside with the nociceptive pain component. So um, it does complicate things and that's possibly a reason why Lyrica wasn't or Pregabalin wasn't that effective because we we find it difficult to to put a number of sciatica uh, has – extra percentage of neuropathic pain or or the nociceptive component contributes to more or less than the the neuropathic pain component and i dare say in people it's it's different Mm. but for non-specific low back pain it is purely nociceptive and it does appear that there is some benefit for NSAIDs um, for some pain relief but it's not something that you really would want to be on long term, and no. when you when you look at the guidelines, it's about because um, uh, there's been a shift in guidelines. So now the guidelines are not recommending opioid analgesics, which is which is a relief for me to hear because um, it's it's not a great medicine for long term, um, but it's all about having the lowest dose possible. And using exercise and non pharmacological therapies to provide benefit um, for them. So I do like the new guidelines um, in respect to really where you're question is going about single interventions um to something more complex it's probably where research needs to go now because we we frequently find that one single intervention is not working so we do need to possibly put something like exercise therapy cognitive behavioral therapy together with um some some manual tissue therapy and spinal manipulative therapy is probably where we're going to go with that one
0: Stephanie, uh, I really appreciate your time today. You've uh, obviously it's done my some pleasure. great work in putting this um, uh, this bit of research together. For for those who are listening in, uh, we will put um, Stephanie's uh, research out with. Uh, the podcast. Uh, it's been published in a in a journal. You might not have heard of it. It's only the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so well well done on getting such a prestigious uh, journal to take up your study. That's fantastic. And thank what we so might much. do is, uh, I think we'll send out those UK uh, uh, guidelines. I'm sure many chiropractors are aware of that anyway. But uh, that'll be uh, go out with the podcast, um, which will be going out shortly. Stephanie, thank you so much again for your time, and we really appreciate it. Uh, taking us through the complex topic of sciatica
1: yeah anytime and uh thanks for for asking the questions and uh hopefully we'll provide some information for the listeners
0: i'm sure you have and we we really need people researchers like you you do a great job and we really appreciate everything you do for uh for the profession and and also for the for the greater good of, of mankind
1: <laughs> my yeah. pleasure
0: Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. Uh, Go forward with purpose, and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next CAA podcast.